please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 26th of May, 2021. Another week has flown by, which means it's time for another morning espresso. Now, as ever, if you're watching live, you can click on the button below where you'll see simultaneous translations. Um, we also have a Q&A button if you'd like to send questions, or you can always send uh, an email to nordeafunds at nordea.com. Right, well, I hope you have all recovered from the celebrations last week. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you need to go back and watch last week's edition. Now, this morning, we are going to kick off with a macro update from our in house strategist, Dr. Sebastian Garley. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning. Hi. Sebastian, the European economy is slowly beginning to reopen, and, you know, similar to elsewhere. There's starting to be some a little bit of concern about you know jump in inflation. So I was wondering what your take is on the situation as we move into the summer. Sure. I mean, if we focus on the first slide, then what you can see is a, a sense of how the economy is starting to evolve. After a huge crisis through COVID-19, we've startedly and slowly see, seen services, which are on the right-hand side, uh, pick up. They're still in contraction territory, but just recently, they're starting to pick up and going into an expansion. And why is this happening? It's because we're reopening the economy. People are heading for the bars, restaurants, uh, and the likes, and enjoying things. And as it does, it creates a, a positive and virtuous circle within the economy. And then the question, of course, becomes that as we reopen the economy in Europe after the Americans and the British, for example, in the Israelis, um, there is a, a global surge in demand. That global surge in demand is perceived to be inflationary, which is quite correct. And the entire question is whether this inflation is transitory or not. And it's a very difficult debate if we're focused on the United States, but if we focus on Europe with its low inflation complex, with large slack in the unemployment rate, that is, there's a lot of people who are waiting to get jobs um, and are still available, whatever happens, uh, then we shouldn't worry too much. This is very much a transitory shock in the case of uh, the European Union and the Eurozone, and, and one that the ECB will safely ignore. The question, of course, becomes, once this economy starts to get more and more traction, probably we're talking about growth at 4.5, maybe even 5% in, uh, in the Eurozone, then does the ECB start to do something? And the first thing it probably does is it stops uh, its accelerated PEP purchases, which are these special program li li uh, linked to COVID-19. And mm -hmm. eventually it has uh, to decide uh, if it wants to continue with uh, PEP beyond the March uh, threshold. And of course it will be no. Uh, and then whether it will increase the other standard program, which is called APP. Uh, and the answer is probably it'll increase the APP. So we, we know there's gonna be a transition between a, a program which benefited a lot of the periphery and a program which is APP, which benefits not so much the periphery and that's going to happen in the second quarter of uh, next year in terms of uh, transition. But that decision probably starts to come to fruition somewhere in September. By the end of the year, we'll know for 
Sure. And that, of course, has huge implication for fixed income investors uh, and, uh, and the likes. Uh, and it will be a function of how good the growth is. And the growth is going to be very good in the Eurozone. So it's a, a very encouraging picture for the Eurozone. We didn't do well our vaccination. We eventually did it very well. Uh, and, and now we're getting the rewards for it. And that means we can go out and, uh, and enjoy life. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you mentioned it in passing there, the, the fact that, you know, in the US, of course, they're, they're slightly ahead, but they've had these stimulus checks and uh, it's meant that people are not returning to the workforce, whereas in Europe, we don't have that. And so perhaps, you know, as things do reopen, employment will, will actually improve much, much quicker than in the US. Do, do you see that happening? It's a good question. And, and of course, the question is if the support basically stops immediately, like, like in the UK, then there's a lot of fear that uh, unemployment will rise initially. Um, but it also means that people go for jobs much faster if, uh, if they have nothing to, to fall back on. It becomes much more active. It depresses wages, all things equal. Uh, yeah. and, and of course, uh, the situation is actually quite good in the Eurozone, but I have family working in some industries and they are being pushed to the limit physically. And, and so I think there's a lot of people who are looking forward to uh, a little bit calmer times after uh, the economy starts to reopen and, and things start to stabilize. Yeah, exactly. Great. Let's uh, just wrap this up then. And uh, we have a summary slide as ever. So uh, first of all, European economy, as we all know, and are all quite relieved about, no doubt, uh, is reopening. And uh, of course, the US were one of the first. UK, of course, the vaccination uh, program was was very successful so uh, things are pubs are opening uh, so that's great um, implication well inflation is to be expected but as you said uh, here in Europe we expect it to be um, a, a transition uh, through that inflation and of course the ECB will react to that uh, accordingly um, and we've written here you know we prefer more value-oriented um, EU stocks and uh, to, to US stocks yeah, and we're quite cautious on U.S. high yield. I think this is uh, one of the warnings. It's a, it's a global hedge for an entire portfolio, uh, but it's priced for perfection. Uh, and uh, obviously, perfection is happening. Uh, the growth is, is actually excellent in the United States, um, but it, it's an accident waiting to happen. It's an illiquid asset class, and hence, we, we continue to warn caution uh, to prefer covered bonds, listed infrastructure, low duration uh, credit solutions. And my personal beef is, as pubs reopen in the US, bring back beef Wellington. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's a nice little segue. Not the pub bit. The, uh, the listed infrastructure was a nice little segue into the next section. So first of all, thank you, Sebastian, for joining us this morning and uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you. So now we move into the main section and uh, we just touched on infrastructure. We, today we're joined by James Crutcher from um, CBRE Clarion, who manage our global listed infrastructure strategies. So good morning, James. Morning, Paul. Hello. James, it's a pleasure to have a fellow Englishman on Morning Expresso. Uh, you're the first. <laughs> Wonderful. Good to be here. So a few weeks ago, um, you and I were on a due diligence call with uh, a very seasoned fund selector. And the first question he asked was with regard to uh, your investment universe and the kind of companies that are investable for your strategy. Now, anyone familiar with the asset class will know why this is so important uh, and why that was his first question. But maybe you could just explain what was going on there. Yes, um, most of the benchmarks that in the listed infrastructure space, and a lot of the legacy managers who form their strategies based on those benchmarks 
are following a very narrow definition of infrastructure. Um, these were created sort of 10 plus years ago, um, narrowly defined. This leads managers into um, concentration risk, lack of ability to diversify, and also means that they miss out on a lot of the subsectors of infrastructure, which we think are particularly well placed to benefit over the next three, five, and 10 years. So the traditional benchmarks exclude things like integrated utilities, as opposed to pure regulated utilities. Those integrated utilities are the ones that are more involved in developing renewable energy assets and other assets related to the energy transition and decarbonisation. It gives those companies a faster um, or better opportunity to invest and grow their earnings than they have had historically. Similarly, those benchmarks exclude communications infrastructure quite commonly. And we think data and communications infrastructure is another beneficiary of a, a structural tailwind um, that's going to play out over the next three, five, ten years. And that is society's ever greater demand and dependence upon data and therefore assets that store it, transmit it or process it. And so those communications infrastructure companies, um, we think are very well placed to perform well and, and just don't feature as heavily in the benchmarks. Um, so that's a couple of examples of how a broader, more inclusive definition of the universe can, can help create alpha in the long run. Exactly. Now, any discussion about global listed infrastructure wouldn't be complete without mention of Joe Biden's American job plan. Um, I guess the most important question at this stage uh, is like, how probable do you think it is that this plan will get approved? And assuming that it does get approved, how can investors potentially benefit from this? Yes, so um, this is something I discuss with my US colleagues a lot. <laughs> um, we, we haven't had very much news on the um, US infrastructure stimulus plan for about a month. It is sort of um, in a bit of a political deadlock. Um, it's important to remember where we are in the US. The, the new Biden administration has proposed a 2.3 trillion jobs um, infrastructure plan, it's often dubbed. We've highlighted um, the 1.4 billion of that 2.3 trillion that we think affects directly um, infrastructures, assets that would come into um, the kind of realm of our listed infrastructure space. Um, the other close to one trillion sort of effects um, uh, softer rather than hard asset type of spending. This comes on the back of a 1.9 trillion COVID spending plan and also a two trillion proposed plan for, for social spending on health and education and things. So a lot of stimulus proposed in the US. And I think mm. it's fair to say um, we don't expect this two point trillion plan to get approved in its current form. It is likely to get watered down. As you'll be aware, the Republican Party are pretty opposed to the tax rises that have been proposed to fund this. But um, we as a team are much more confident that this administration will pass an infrastructure plan in some form. It's been talked about by previous administrations, but not acted upon. But, but we're pretty confident something passes, but probably gets watered down. Um, the Republicans are pretty um, okay about the top panel of kind of spending, roads, bridges, airports. Again, down at the bottom, digital transformation, infrastructure spending, broadband, fiber, optic investments, that kind of stuff. It's the middle panel that the, the Republicans are less keen on um, energy transition spending. So 
it's that area that might get watered down. But it's important to remember that um, state or, or energy policy is generally a state-led um, issue in the US and not a, not a federal policy. And a lot of states in the US have already laid out quite ambitious decarbonisation targets and have already, for several unit, years now, been embarking on energy transition. And so a lot of the companies we look at in the States, um, utilities, have got a very long visible kind of runway of investment in green energy and associated investment. And so this Biden stimulus plan, it would really just be the sort of icing on the cake. It wouldn't um, the the powerful tailwind of energy transition we see in the US and other countries is, is intact even without this spending plan. So yes, I think it would be helpful um, but it's already quite a powerful uh, um, structural story. On timing, I can't be very specific, but um, I think we do expect something to get passed later this year. Yeah, we shouldn't get too hung up on the US as well. I mean, this is a global listed infrastructure strategy that you're running as well. So that's important. And as you just mentioned there, this is, of course, happening, you know, we're just at the beginning, perhaps, of a, of a huge super cycle for the asset class uh, globally. So how are you positioned towards that coming mega trend? Yeah, um, yes, we, we talk about um, what we see as a, an investment super for infrastructure. And it comes from some of, some of it comes from those policy support initiatives we talked about, stimulus in the US. We have stimulus spending plans in Europe. Um, yeah. uh, the, the EU next generation, 750 billion spending um, of, of money that needs to be deployed over the next two to three years. And that really just enhances trends that we had identified pre-pandemic. They're already in place. I've talked about one of those, which is energy transition, decarbonisation. The more countries that sign up to decarbonisation targets and carbon net neutral, the more money you can add to the large amount that already needs to be invested to reach those targets. Investment in renewable energy generation assets, but also in associated infrastructure, investment needs to be made into the grids that transmit and distribute energy for that extra intermittency that comes from renewables. Those renewables need to be interconnected to the grids. Um, there'll be investment in energy storage, batteries, but other energy storage technologies. There needs to be investment into electric vehicle charging. Um, huge amount. The Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimate that um, something like three quarters of a trillion US dollars investment is required every year until 2050 if, if um, those net neutral carbon targets are to be met. And that is all giving um, for a subset of utilities um, who are involved in those activities, it's giving those companies opportunities to invest and grow their earnings faster than they ever have been able to in the past. And then secondly, digital infrastructure, digital transformation, Society is just requires more assets to transmit, store, and process data. So it is data centers, it is fiber optic networks, it is also mobile phone telecommunication towers. And so the companies that own and, and develop those assets um, and consolidate that space also have a very um, strong earnings growth outlook, which we think will lead to good returns. And this is all operating in a, we're all taking place in an environment of relatively low interest rates where that funding is available uh, for that kind of investment. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, this all sort of harkens back to what you were saying before about, you know, that benchmark. And these are these are new areas for, for infrastructure that just didn't exist you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So uh, this is this is how things are evolving. Right. So, so things are changing. Now, from experience, uh, we know that clients love to hear stock stories and you brought one along for us today. So can you tell us about AES, um, what they do and why you think that it's an attractive investment right now? Yeah, AES is a, a really interesting company in its own right and, and it um, is a great example for um, what we've been talking about of how this energy generation, energy transition gives integrated utilities um, a, an opportunity to grow earnings far in excess of their historic rates. So, and, and this is analogous to a lot of companies in this space, NL in Europe, Ipetrola in Europe, you might be aware of, EDP, yeah. Engie, they will all follow a similar pattern to what I'm describing. So AES is a utility that operates in about 10 states across the US, is traditionally owner of distribution grids, but also energy generation. Traditionally, that was thermal, coal, gas-fired, the states it operates in have been targeting energy, uh, carbon reductions for some time and are incentivizing transition to green energy. So this company has been one of the largest developers of renewable energy generation for some time. And it has a long pipeline of, of that continuation to replace that coal and gas fired power generation with renewable energy, wind and solar. Um, it's also one of the world's leading leaders in battery storage because it's mm -hmm. been incentivized to pair its intermittent generation with battery storage and has been able to um, form a joint venture with Siemens and is now um, building storage, not just for its own generation fleet, but for third parties. And so this stock now has, an, um, traditionally, it was a low growth utility with poor ESG credentials. Thermal generation had a high volatility and so investors were reluctant to put a very high multiple on that kind of activity. Now it has the added stability that comes from renewable generation because that is contracted, more visible stable cash flows. Investors are willing to put a higher multiple on that. And it also gives it, the development of this gives it a higher growth profile than ever had before. So these assets are, these companies are, are very different from how they would have been five, 10 years ago. Um, and the stock market is only just kind of waking up to how these companies have a much more attractive profile from a number of reasons now, uh, for, in, in a number of respects now. Hmm. Now, we've talked in the past about how uh, listed infrastructure differentiates itself from, from global equities, but there's also a view, perhaps controversial, that it might even be a good proxy for bond investors. So tell us about that, James. Yeah, infrastructure and listed infrastructure appeals to a wide range of investors for a number of reasons. Some some bond investors are looking for the um, as as yields in, in fixed income get lower, they're looking for something yielding but with a bit of growth. Um, equity investors are often looking to diversify to more real assets. So a lot of reasons why people come to infrastructure, but for a number of reasons, listed infrastructure is is valued at the moment. Um, what we talk about is a triple discount. So on the left, we've got a discount to general equities. What we're showing here is the EV EBITDA relationship. Um, historically, 
listed infrastructure would trade at a 10% premium to general equities on that EV EBITDA metric. Over the last couple of years, it's derated to where it's now at a discount, um, uh, a lower multiple EV EBITDA than general equities, some close to 15% lower relationship than historically. Um, so we think it's very well placed versus general equities to, to do well. On the right hand side, we're showing the relationship um, for bond yield relative to bond yield. So the dividend yield you get on listed infrastructure would have historically been 150 basis points lower than you get on corporate bond portfolio. Obviously, the mm -hmm. corporate bond yield doesn't grow, whereas listed infrastructure gives you historically six to seven percent growth a year. And so that justified that discount. Um, on, on yield. Now we're still seeing as rapid earnings growth profile, perhaps even stronger given the trends I talked about. And yet listed infrastructure gives you um, the yield has, has derated to a, to a higher level than, than corporate bonds now. So discount on both those measures. So James, so just to interrupt you there. So that's two, but actually one of the most interesting elements in the whole infrastructure story right now is this valuation gap that you've identified between the, the private and the public market. So perhaps you could explain to us, you know, that, that's the third pillar, if you like, but maybe you could explain to us why there's this imbalance in valuations and also why cash in the private markets that hasn't been deployed yet is going to end up supporting the listed market. Yeah, sure. If we, if we on slide nine here, we can see yeah. that valuation gap to private market infrastructure that you mentioned. We've yeah. looked at all the transactions we can find of infrastructure assets in the private market outside the listed space. And as you can see, that multiple is significantly higher than the share price implied valuation of the same assets in the listed market, at almost a 20% discount on an unlevered basis for the, for the listed version of the same asset class. That's massive. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And the right-hand side shows you um, why we don't think that private market multiple is likely to deflate anytime soon. You've got um, well over $200 billion of money raised by private market infrastructure funds that are still waiting to be invested in infrastructure assets. So that amount of competition and, and hunt for assets is going to keep that valuation up. And we're actually seeing now that some of those investors are crossing over into the, into the listed market to take advantage of that valuation gap. We're seeing a small number of companies taken private this year, listed companies. We've seen private market infrastructure investors take large stakes in listed infrastructure companies. Um, so as that plays out, I think that is going to arbitrage away some of that gap in favour of, of the listed market. And is another reason why we think the asset class is, is very well placed to do well over the next couple of years. So, so that money is going to spill over from the private into the, the public space and, and drive up uh, stock prices. But why is it not being deployed in the private market? You know, why are we in this situation? Well, infrastructure assets, by their very nature, are, are relatively scarce. They're not um, new assets are being are being built, but it's not in in a in enough to satisfy the demand. Um, at the same time, more and more institutional investors are looking to allocate to real assets and, list and infrastructure in order to diversify away, presumably from their fixed income portfolios. Um, and that's a recognition of the, of the stable characteristic of, of infrastructure in general. Um, and th these assets um, don't trade very often, they're closely held, 
So those private market investors are, are struggling to get that money deployed and, and are having to pay ever higher prices. So yes, we do see it already spilling over into the listed market. And, and we only see that in trend, that trend um, continuing and enhancing, um, especially if, if the valuation of the listed form continues to be so compelling. Exactly. Right, I, I'm aware of time. So uh, we're gonna go to the summary slide now. Uh, I'm just going to go through it quickly, but afterwards I ask you if there's anything you'd like to add. But uh, when it comes to the, the key takeaways for this morning, um, first of all, we were talking about this evolution of the infrastructure universe and how you know you can benefit from moving away from what was a narrowly uh, defined universe to a broader one, which includes all of these new technologies uh, within infrastructure as well. We've talked about the, the proposed uh, Americans job plan and, um, you know, obviously that significant uh, investment. You mentioned it's probably not going to pass as it stands today, but again, you know, the, the direction of travel is, is pretty clear and uh, that will be a booster in what is actually a, a global phenomenon at the moment. Then we have infrastructure um, going into this super cycle. We have this tailwind uh, behind the asset class. And so the focus, focus uh, for future for megatrends is is also supported by you know these low financing costs that you mentioned you know the, the uh, very low interest rates that we have right now, and finally we have this triple discount so uh, discount versus equities versus bonds but also uh, versus itself <laughs> in as far as we the private market where we see that that um, gap, and that creates opportunities uh, for investors. So actually, there was one thing I did want to add, and that was that the global listed infrastructure strategy is considered um, an Article 8 solution uh, in the new um, SFDR categorization. Maybe you could say a few words on that, James. Yeah, um, I think it's important that, that, that um, uh, when, when we talk about those, that powerful um, energy transition um, tailwind for, for the asset class, Effectively, there's a strong ESG correlation with that. Companies yeah. reducing their carbon footprint, and so integrating ESG into the investment process, we think, is going to be an increasingly vital part of of um, being able to generate alpha in in listed infrastructure. So, yeah, a really key key element. You were saying before that in the conversations we've had before with clients that it's so heavily regulated, typically that that also brings a, a political element to this ESG side of things as well. And, that, and that's super important for you to understand and, and keep tabs on as well. Yeah, these are big physical, um, uh, very visible assets in society. Um, when something goes wrong, it's, it's very clear. And so they are closely regulated. Um, they impinge on society. And so in that sense, um, ESG is very important, but it also means these companies are always striving, very, very aware of that importance of, of safety and environment and social and governance. And so um, it's a key differentiator for us when we're picking stocks and, um, and very important for the sector, we think. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us uh, this morning, James. And uh, I look forward to sharing a pint with you in the not too distant future. It will be a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. 
So next week on the 2nd of June, we will be getting an update from the head of Nordea's multi-assets team, Dr. Asbjorn Troller-Hansen. Now, of course, many of you will be very familiar with our stable return strategy and uh, alpha solutions as well. So don't miss next week's edition, whatever you do. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our Stay Alert microsite at nordia.lu and there you'll find all of the past interviews and we also have them as podcast versions as well. That's it for this week. I'll see you in June.